2013, Sandra Goldmark founded FixUp and began operating short-term repair shops, together with educational repair and reuse events around New York City. We're going to talk about FixUp and Sandra's brilliant new book, Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can look to what the work that's been done in food and learn from it and, and adapt it. So I literally did that. I looked at an amazing food writer, Michael Pollan, um, and I, I loved the way he took this complex problem and, and didn't try to dumb it down, enjoyed the complexity, dealt with the complexity, but also provided these really clear steps. So I tried to adapt those steps for stuff, as you said, and say, have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it, pass it on. Hello, and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Hello and welcome to episode 41. I'm recording this on Friday the 20th of November 2020 and it's been a busy week. Firstly, thanks to the United Nations Systems Staff College for inviting me to present on their excellent and free online course, Circular Economy and the 2030 Agenda. I was asked to tackle the question of what is and isn't sustainable in the context of the circular economy. I gave a quick tour through my Circular Economy Framework 2.0 from my book, which is featured in the course giving examples of unsustainable practices for each element. Fitting it into 25 minutes was a challenge. There are lots of examples. Peter Desmond completed this course earlier in the year and it comes highly recommended. Another programme is planned for 2021 and I've put a link in the show notes. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Sandra Goldmark's new book, Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. Sandra has an engaging writing style and her book is an uplifting and enjoyable read with some fascinating stories about our relationship with stuff. Sandra challenges us to rethink what we buy, what we keep and what we discard. She explores the challenges of trying to create a viable business model for repair specialists and the problems that designers create for those of us who want to repair things. In the podcast, Sandra tells us how she was inspired by an artist's manifesto for a care economy from the 1960s. We learn what deters people from getting stuff repaired, what kind of objects have the lowest repair success rates, and how to tweak the business model for repairs to make it more viable. Let's have a listen. In today's episode, I'm talking to Sandra Goldmark in the United States. Sandra is a designer, teacher and entrepreneur whose work focuses on circular economy solutions to overconsumption and climate change. She's the author of Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet, published just recently uh, and read by me last week. 
Sandra is also an Associate Professor of Professional Practice in Theatre and Director of Sustainability and Climate Action at Barnard College. Back in 2013, Sandra founded FixUp and began operating short-term repair shops and educational repair and reuse events all around New York City. We're going to talk about FixUp and Sandra's new book, Fixation. Sandra, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you, Catherine. It's so nice to see you, hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good to see you too. So, first of all, tell us a bit about your background and what, what led to this interest, this deep interest in repairing stuff. Well, the, um, the short version is that I was home on maternity leave about seven years ago and a bunch of stuff broke in my house and I got super frustrated about it and felt like this is ridiculous. We should be able to fix things. The, the slightly deeper version is that I am a theatrical designer by training and I, so I have worked with stuff, with objects for many, many years, which um, I, maybe the combination of that deep history of working with objects and the kind of acute insanity of having a newborn when people send you all kinds of baby gear, I think maybe those two parts of my life collided and, and somehow led to the repair shops. Tell us a bit about the first repair shop and, and what happened there. How, how did you come up with the idea to actually have a pop-up shop? Well, so again, I was home with like this broken vacuum and all this stuff and uh, nobody would fix it for me. So I wrote a letter to Walmart, um, very logically, saying you should open a repair shop in the corner of every Walmart store uh, around the world. Um, and I was all prepared to send my letter to Walmart and my husband, you know, I showed him the letter and he said, well, this is great, but maybe Walmart won't read it or, you know, change their entire business model on the basis of this one letter. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, there's a certain logic to that. Fine. So I, I said, well, let's just do it ourselves. Let's open a repair shop. Um, we've got tons of friends who work in theater who know how to fix things. Um, and let's see what happens, you know, because he said, he said, when you send, if you send it to Walmart, you have no data. I said, fine, let's get some data. And Michael was game. Um, bless him. So we just got a local businessman in our neighborhood, rented us his empty storefront cheap. And we made a sign and we, um, you know, went to our farmer's market and told people we were going to open our little shop. And we brought our friends in to fix things. And so we were sort of playing repair shop, you know, we we're all theater people, we just were acting like we were repair shop owners. And we didn't know if anyone would show up. And lo and behold, they did. They started showing up in droves with all kinds of broken stuff and we started fixing it. <laughs> and that was the beginning. <laughs> and you've learned, you've done lots of, lots of um, pop-up shops along the way. And one of your interests was to try and work out what the business case was so that you could go back to Walmart or anybody else and kind of, um, you know, prove that repairs were both um, desirable from a from a consumer and society point of view and also that it could be part of a business model so what what did you find out along the way on that right so after that first shop we did as you said I think we wound up doing over the seven years 12 or 14 shops somewhere in there um, and somewhere along the way we we stopped being a bunch of theater kids playing repair shop and we actually became business owners. You know, we had licenses, we had an LLC, we were charging our customers, we had to come up with a price list and get insurance. And so we tr it transformed from this experiment or this form of play into a, into a real business. 
And from the beginning, even when we were still just kind of having, although it was fun the whole time, but uh, even, even in the beginning, part of the play, part of the experiment was charging. I knew that I wanted to charge for the repairs for a number of reasons. One, um, I've worked in theater a long time, so I've done enough work for free and I wasn't about to ask my friends to work for free. Two, I was curious if people would pay for the service. I was curious where this act of repair fit into our mental notions of value, right? Economic value. And then I was curious where it fit into our larger notions of value, like why, is, why are repair shops closing all around uh, the United States and the UK? Um, what, what is it about this economic system that basically makes it so hard for us to make money doing it? And could we, by changing things up, by changing the business model, could we actually make it work? Could we pay our fixers and pay, pay our costs? So, um, so that, that, I, that question of the business model was there from the very beginning. There are a couple things interesting that we did to the business model accidentally from the beginning that I realize now, or I realized halfway through were actually kind of these interesting disruptions. Um, so one was the, the notion of rent, right? We, from the beginning, we were in this little storefront that we, you know, we just, we got cheap, but then very quickly we moved to appearing at farmer's markets or other events around the cities. So we, we could appear in multiple neighborhoods all at once, high rent areas, but we were paying very low rent in those areas and very low rent in our shop to fix. So we kind of took this traditional storefront brick and mortar model and reduced a lot of the overhead costs because of being mobile. We always, people always said, oh, you have to do a truck. We never actually did the truck, but that's another way like food trucks have sort of upended some of the restaurant model as well. Mm. And the other big business model innovation that we did was um, generalization. So historically, repair services have usually been specialized, right? You go to your jeweler, you go to your cobbler, you go to your appliance guy, you go to your um, whatever cell phone person, and each of them is paying rent on a, store, a fixed storefront in a neighborhood. So that's five rents, right? That's also five errands for the customer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an unsustainable model in today's, certainly in a big city like New York, that's too much rent and it's too much trouble for a, you know, a family where often now two people are working. So by bringing all the fixers into one place and allowing people to drop off everything that ranged from a lamp to a toy, to a chair, to a blender, to a necklace, one-stop drop-off, um, we actually were really disrupting this traditional business model. Um, and so that, that, that was sort of, um, those were the components that we were playing with in terms of how, how might repair work in, in 2020. <laughs> and in the book, you talk about both the appetite from um, citizens. I'm, I hesitate to use the word consumers because <laughs> we, sh we shouldn't think of ourselves as just consumers. Um, so the appetite from people, from, from people yeah, <laughs> the appetite from people to get their stuff repaired and emotional durability and, and, and um, all those other drivers but you also talk about the problems of repairing modern technology particularly and toys and so on mm. so let's let's talk first about some of the key barriers what's what's making it difficult for repairers to repair stuff so well you raised toys that was like <clears throat> The, so we had an 85% success rate and fixed thousands of objects, 85% of them, about 15% were fails. 
The fails were largely due to lack of parts mm -hmm. um, for appliances. Almost all the fails were appliances. Lack of parts or sometimes literally just the design of the object, like you can't get in it. It's so cheap. Everything's made of plastic. Everything breaks the second you look at it. Um, it's funny you mentioned toys because we, we would always get these remote control cars. These little sad little child would show up with their, <laughs> with their like kind of despairing parent and you could tell like this like birthday present that the child had wanted for so long had broken 30 seconds after they started playing with it and we had a horrible rate with those little remote control cars because they're really cheap they're you know it's kind of all of the all of the repair fails were always rolled into that one object cheap plastic poor design impossible to get into sometimes you have to literally crack the casing like it's glued together um, and certainly no parts are available I mean you can't even figure out who the manufacturer is, much less get a part or a, or a schematic drawing from them. So, um, but that problem extended to an, a, a really wide range of project products, even going up to quite high end, um, you know, computer gadgets. So in more and more types of products, uh, you know, there's, there's no consideration of designing for repair or disassembly for recycling. Um, you know, it's, it's common to use glues and bonding and um, make things, you know, including particularly iPhones, make them virtually impossible to even get into. So, it's, so that was kind of, you know, something that you came up against time after time. It was, yeah. I mean, and you can tell, especially Adam, our fixer, who was kind of our electronic genius, he would, he would sometimes sort of let out this kind of shout of frustration when he opened something or when he had to crack the plastic case or that has proprietary screws so you can't open it. There were, I must say, sometimes you would hear him from his workbench open something up and sort of say, oh, this one's great. Whoever designed this was a genius. You know, like he, once he was inside the object, he had a real sense of whether it had been designed to make the fixer's task possible and even in a few cases easy and those were kind of dreamy <laughs> yeah, yeah dreamy and few and far between and, and what about yeah. um what about the barriers for people what you know we, you've talked about the the cost of getting things repaired and the um you know multiple trips to go to specialist repairers um in the traditional uh, repair model what else is stopping people getting things repaired or, or what drives people to get things repaired? Well, so, yeah, so there's two sides to that. The driving people to was actually a pleasant surprise because we found that people were really eager for the service, especially when they found that we could fix all different kinds of things. They would really light up. You know, they would usually bring us something that, that for some reason, people really think of appliances when they think of repair. It's like kind of the first thing that comes to their mind. Um, so we got a lot of lamps and appliances, but then they would see us in there with the carpentry, with the jewelry, with the toys, with the ceramics, with the uh, pillows, the textiles, whatever we were working on. And they would kind of sort of, you would see those wheels turning in their head and they would literally go home and get a bag of stuff and bring a bag of other stuff and bring it back. <laughs> so, and a lot of people would say to us, I, you know, the barrier for people is are three things, I think. One, there just aren't enough fixers out there. You cannot find the service and it's a pain in the butt, right? So we tried to overcome that in the neighborhoods where we were by being in a convenient place, by uh, accepting all kinds of items, all these things. But 
by and large, it's not accessible. So that's the number one barrier. The number two barrier I would say for people is time. They lead such busy lives. Um, you know, they have a limited number of, of things, errands that they can deal with. And, and again, we tried to sort of ease that by um, A, taking all kinds of items and B, appearing at these locations that were already part of their routine. So that's why the farmer's markets worked so well. They were already going there anyway to get their food. They were already going with a little cart you know, because they were going to bring their food home. So it wasn't that big a deal to kind of pop the lamp in the cart and bring it down to us. And they were already used to bringing that cart home from the market. So when we came back with their fixed item, they just, again, they, they didn't have to develop a new uh, chunk of time in their day. They mm. could just fold it into their marketing routine, which I think is really interesting as a business model idea, because it means it, we were at farmer's markets, but it could also be part of the grocery routine, right? Mm. Um, you're always going to the grocery and, and having to bring the stuff home. Anyway, so that's separate. Yeah. So, and then yeah. the third barrier, of course, is price. So that is like a whole conversation about price. Our prices, repair prices in general, and the new price of the cheap, the low price of new goods. Mm. And I think, uh, and this is an example I've um, talked about multiple times on the podcast because it, it still rankles from, you know, um, probably over five years ago now. Um, it's the price of the spare parts. Um, and often you can't just buy the part like I needed a just a bearing for a washing machine and I could hear it starting to go and thought I'll replace this before it gets terminal you know and I've I've um, replaced bearings on my mountain bikes lots of times um, so you know I've got <laughs> I've got the kit to do it but you couldn't just buy the bearing you had to buy a whole drum assembly at 270 pounds you know versus a new washing machine at 350 so you know, faced with that kind of choice, who's going to buy the drum assembly for a kind of two and a half year old washing machine? It's, you know, it's, it's all designed to kind of, you know, tick the box that in theory you can get the parts, but in practice, who's going to want, who's going to make that kind of um, decision? It's, uh, well, I think like when you really dig into the price stuff, that is true. It's also, there's, interestingly, there's a, there's, there's a few more layers to it. So, there's an object like a washing machine because there's, I think of it as like, there's these rational layers of why you might be fixing something. There's, um, you know, resistance to just waste, which a lot of people still have. And then there's an emotional reason, which mm. you may not have an emotional reason for your washing machine, though actually surprisingly, a lot of people do have emotional attachment to like non-sentimental items, but and then there's how it fits in your home. So for example, if you have a lamp, maybe you have a pair of them. That's a really easy example. Or you have dining chairs. So getting one dining chair fix actually saves you the whole set. Mm. So actually for that repair, you might pay, you, people will pay a little more than you think because they're actually protecting their whole, their whole dining set mm. or both lamps or mm. whatever. Um, but and even for some items, they'll pay more than you might think, a higher percentage of the replacement cost in order to be able to keep it. I think the, the ball bearing and the 200, you know, the entire washing drum is, is kind of the example of where, where it gets bad. Mm. But I feel like it's not as bad as, or it could be. Like it's, we're kind of closer, I think, to it being possible, especially when we expand beyond appliances. Mm. I guess the um, earliest example of planned obsolescence was a was an appliance in a way, wasn't it? The um, the light bulb from the 1920s. 
um, you know, making it last a few thousand hours instead of, you know, tens of thousands of hours. Um, yeah, so, uh, it's a great yeah. documentary about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how, how's something like Fix Up on the pop-up repair centre concept, how's that different to repair cafes? Hmm. So, yeah, for, so people often confuse just with rep repair cafes. Um, the basic difference is that we provided drop-off service and we charged. And repair cafes are usually a free service, volunteer, where you sit down with the fixer and you kind of learn how to fix it yourself or you, you learn how they do it. Um, we actually did some of those events as well where we would do more of an educational style, but really the bulk of what we did was drop-off service. And I think... Um, I think repair cafes are great. I think they're amazing. I think they're um, a wonderful part of the ecosystem. I also think that not everybody has the time to like really sit down at length with a fixer and like get in the innards of their microwave. And I think that's okay too. Mm. And I think, um, I think it's really important to have a whole rich variety of ways that people can get things fixed. I think of it, it's kind of like food, right? Like sometimes... I'm going to go to a cooking class and like really learn how to make a, a sourdough bread. Sometimes I'm just going to make something quick at home. Sometimes I'm going to order in. We actually want all of those different varieties of how we make food because, and we want them all to be supporting this broader notion of like healthy consumption. Mm. And that's where I think repair cafes and drop-off service and eventually big business too are need to be part of that ecosystem as well. Mm. And that's a great link to the, because um, you use the food analogy in your book um, with a riff on Michael Pollan's um, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Um, so tell, tell us about your remaking of his, his uh, motto. Yeah, so I felt like, um, I felt two things. First of all, it seemed to me very basic that food and stuff are related, right? That these are are part and parcel of how we exist and survive in the world as human beings. You know, we take things from the earth, we transform them, and then they give us sustenance or shelter or survival, right? Um, both cooked food and tool making and objects are totally central to every single human culture. Um, they're also both huge global systems that are totally trashing the planet. <laughs> systems of extraction and manufacture and distribution. It's really very similar for food and stuff. At the same time, there's been this amazing food movement that emerged, you know, um, at least 40, 50 years ago and has been going strong. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom there that the what I call the stuff movement can learn from. Like basically in terms of stuff, we're not as, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can look to what the work that's been done in food and learn from it and, and adapt it. So I literally did that. I looked at an amazing food writer, Michael Pollan, um, and I, I loved the way he took this complex problem and, and didn't try to dumb it down, enjoyed the complexity, dealt with the complexity, but also provided these really clear steps. So I tried to adapt those steps for stuff, as you said, and say, have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it, pass it on. And in the, in the book, you kind of talk us through those, those stages, don't you, with um, you know, examples from the, uh, the pop-up shops uh, and from the conversations that you had with people about why they were um, so attached to, a, you know, what seemed to be a, a simple and sometimes even quite cheap object, um, but, what, you know, that mm -hmm. emotional durability and so on. 
and the caring for it as well. You you you, you um, yeah. majored in on on that, so it wasn't just about get it repaired. It was about treasuring objects and and um, you know yeah, taking taking responsibility, I guess. And sometimes just taking care of it, like you know, mm. what I, I realized partway through the repair shops, actually pretty early, that it wasn't really just about repair. You know, repair is just one part of this whole pattern, and it's a way in. But you really, you really can think about the whole cycle: what you what you buy, where it comes from, how you take care of it, and what happens at the mm. end. And that's really what the book is about. It's not really about repair. I think that's that's very true, and one of the themes I'm starting to use in in talks particularly when it's talks to community groups and so on is to say that I think there's we're starting to have a shift from consuming to caring mm -hmm. so caring about what we're buying who made it um, were they paid fairly mm -hmm. is it made from sustainable materials um, is it going to last is it repairable and what's going to happen to it at the end of its of its use cycle you know when I finish with it and I think people are starting to get, you know, really much more interested in that. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how that evolves, um, you know, post-pandemic. I think people are starting to realise, you know, be because of the forced changes that um, they've managed without buying stuff. And that, you know, it's, it's quite freeing not to have to have a different outfit every weekend yeah. or all that kind of stuff that we hear about. Um, youngsters having to do that you know when you've worn it once and posted it on Instagram you can't wear it again and um, you know that must be pretty stressful <laughs> from from my perspective so how do we move on from all this stuff how much of the problem is about us and how much do you think is about marketing and strategies of planned obsolescence you know fast we've had we've we've had and we're still living with fast food we've had and we're still living with fast fashion and now we hear that you know it's fast furniture fast technology the life cycle of everything is speeding up isn't it well i think like just sort of to lead into that what you were saying about care really resonates with me like i really think it's all about that like and how can we build a whole economy based on care right like what would a care economy look like where we actually value these acts of care um and where we 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 pay for them, I do think that the pandemic has really um, kind of showed people, and it's not just about blenders and you know uh, toaster ovens, but but it's related. Has showed people how much we devalue care. When you look at like um, at least here in the United States, some of the crises around like home health aides and uh, elder care and teachers, like all, uh, even, you know, infrastructure and maintenance work at the city and, and national level, all of this type of work of maintenance and care is just totally devalued. And, and the new and the shiny stuff is so, uh, so pushed. And I guess this is getting what you said, like, is it us or is it marketing? And I guess I think it's both. Like on the one hand, I think it's okay to like shiny new things. Like we're human beings. We're like a little bird that sees a shiny piece of tinfoil on the ground and we want it. Like that's okay. It's, it's kind of a wonderful thing to have a shiny new object. It's a, a blessing and it is like often really great. But we do have naturally, I think as humans, we also have an attachment to, to, to older things, right? 
we have a kind of aversion to waste. And I think where the, where the economic and the marketing part comes in is that right now our society only supports the latter impulse. So your impulse to get something shiny and new is super um, facilitated, organized, made frictionless by all of this apparatus of manufacturing and advertising and clicking. Um, but your impulse to like keep your washing machine or keep your old like plaid shirt that you really love is not supported by the infrastructure of our economy. And so if we actually built an economy around care, like you're implying, maybe we could make, not only make it easier for us to keep our stuff, but acknowledge that impulse, value it and pay for it. Yeah, that's a good point. And it reminds me of what Patagonia are doing with their Warnware store, which frustratingly for me is only available uh, for delivery in the United States. Um, but they have three categories of um, uh, kind of uh, quality, I suppose, or, you know, the, the, um, uh, how good the, um, the used garment's going to be if you're going to buy it. But in each of the descriptions about those those levels they kind of remind you that um you know the scars are stories um so any any little um you know tear or uh, worn bit in in a uh, a jacket or something is how somebody else has has used it um doing stuff that they love to do whether that's climbing walking or whatever and so they're kind of trying to encourage the the new user of somebody else's um pre-love stuff to value those scars as well, because they help tell the story of you know what this garment's gone and done before mm -hmm. it arrived at your hands, and I think also that that um, brings me back to something that you included in the book, which I found really interesting, which was the work of Eucalys, and um, quite a long time ago, you, you you were you were saying, forty or fifty years ago, and the description that you know there are generally two types of work in human society, development work and maintenance work. And that you know, was that the maintenance works ended up being completely devalued by society. You know what you were just saying about um, teachers and nurses and cleaners and so on. Um, mm. And so, tell us a bit more about about um, that work and and uh, where that's led you to. So, Mira Latterman Ukelis is an artist, and I um, I really wasn't familiar with her work. I was doing these repair shops, and I had these two little children who basically, you know basically caring and maintaining for them all day long. That's all you do. It's like, <laughs> um, and I remember when I was younger, I used to say, oh, maintenance is so lame. Uh, you know, you could spend your whole life just maintaining your life. And I meant kind of cleaning your room and balancing your checkbook back when we had checkbooks and going to the doctor and um, vacuuming and then cleaning up. Uh, you know, I just thought you could do, the whole week could go by where you didn't actually do anything real or important. I remember specifically saying that about maintenance. And I think I sort of associated that type of work with my mother because in our family, she is the one who did that work largely um, in terms of like cleaning, getting people to the doctor, like um, keeping the engine running, you know? And so I went to this exhibit at the Queens Museum of Mir Lottoman Ukelis's work. And I was just, and at, this is in the middle of like spending years fixing people's dirty toasters and literally like cleaning the gunk out of their pearl necklaces like it's gross in there when you really get into the stuff like it is repairs is maintenance and there's there's some grossness and 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 feeling like it was so hard and and you know um 
um, tough days feeling like, oh, this is never gonna work, you know? And I go to this museum exhibit and here's this woman who in 1968 started um, after she had a baby. That's also when it hit her too. And she did created this artwork about maintenance. So she had, you know, washing diapers and cleaning the steps of a library. And, um, and then she went on to take photographs of office workers who cleaned this huge office building in New York. Um, and, and she was basically saying, look at this work, look at this invisible work. And, and can this be art? Instead of just making a new sculpture or making a new thing, can we, can we make this work visible and can we give it value by, by calling it art, by making it art, by naming it? And I thought it was so powerful and beautiful and it, and it made me, it sort of crystallized. It's like when you see something where somebody puts something into words so much better than you can. And I thought, this is it. It's like, she has a, a manifesto where she talks about that work of maintenance versus the work of development and the tension and how, you know, I think they both have value. It's not that we don't need new things. We do. It's the imbalance right now. And the gender mm. part of it was really interesting to me. Like she's, re she really goes there. She, she went to Barnard where I teach and she, you know, the work of care is, is feminized in our society. It's often women, people of color, and it's usually paid less. Like it is very literally like concretely devalued. Um, and so anyway, her work was just so exciting for me to sort of see it all, all put out there and put out there in 1968. And she, she links mm. it to climate change too. In 1968, she says, we have to value maintenance. We have to go there because these people's lives are in the balance and the planet is in the balance. And there it was, you know, she did it. <laughs> and here we are in 2020, realizing how important care is. Um, mm. You know, not just caring for the sick and the elderly whilst we're all, um, you know, at risk from coronavirus and so on, and how important it is for that for that human connection and that and that care between, um, you know, people in society, as as well as caring for um, our living planet and caring for the for the stuff that we have instead of just um you know getting that quick buzz and then um waiting for the next um exciting advert to, to persuade us that we need this next next new thing brilliant so um so the book's launch now am i right i know i had an early copy of it for which um, um thank you very much to your to your pr team really enjoyed reading it um, yeah so it's, it's out it's up I for think sale it's is out. it it's out and um, I think it's out in the UK as well. Brilliant. So I'll, I'll put the links to um, that in, in, the, um, in the show notes. And um, if people want to find out more, so obviously they can buy the book, Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. Uh, and how else can they find out about um, the work that you're involved in, Sandra? Um, well, they can go to my website, sandragoldmark.com. That's one. It's probably the best. <laughs> Okay, um, and we'll put that link in the, in the show notes as well. Um, and um, you know, what 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 are you working on next? What what's your next passion, or or is it still going to be around um, repairs and fixing things? And God, such a good question. I have a lot of fun projects on my plate right now, and I don't know yet where I'll go. I'm working on um, we're working on something at Barnard called Circular Campus. Uh, I'm working on a, a really exciting project at Columbia. Um, and there's so much going on in the world of circular economy and repair and reuse that is um, 
it's really exploding, which I think is, is so, so exciting. So I don't know yet, you know, what my role or, or, you know, part will be in that little drama, but it's really exciting to see it starting. Great stuff. So maybe we'll be able to check in in a few months and find out what, what's happening at uh, Circular Barnard. And, uh, and also, uh, depending on the election results in the US in a week or so, whether right. there's a shift um, you know, towards a circular economy or whether we're still on the, um, the tape-make-waste um, treadmill. <laughs> let's, let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, you know, the, next, the next term brings a circular transition. Indeed, indeed. Yes. Sorry, I'm, sorry I'm gonna, to end I'm, on I'm that going to, potentially depressing note. <laughs> no, I'm actually going to vote right now after this recording. I, I'm like kind of excited. I'm you know voting early and uh, well, I have to teach my class and then I'm going to go vote. It's, here we come. This election is happening. Yeah. So, Sandra, thank you very much for talking to us about fixation and, uh, and fix up. And uh, good luck with... Um, your next projects at uh, Barnard College. Look forward to hearing more about that in the future. And uh, yeah, um, let's wait and see what happens in the election. So even in the UK, it's quite exciting (laughs) again. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I really enjoy talking with you. And I hope that people, you know, one of my hopes for fixation is that it speaks to businesses or people like you who are really um, understand the topic of circular economy, but also for people who maybe have heard it, but don't exactly know how to put it into practice in their own lives. Because actually sort of living a circular economy life, it's actually something people already do. It's not that hard. It's not very complicated, you know? Um, and businesses and policymakers can help make it easier. But the book is, is a little bit trying to sort of take something that might seem abstract and connect it to these practices that many of us already engage in and just need to like turn up the volume on. Yeah, and I thought that I thought the book was brilliant. It's a um, you know a really digestible read, very thought provoking. Not just for for those people who are um, you know really keen on the circular economy, um, but for anybody um, you know at any stage of their lives to just get them thinking differently about the kind of stuff that's that's in their house and the way that we've just adopted habits without thinking really, um, yeah. and um, you know how how we can take more care and responsibility for um you know our 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 impact in in just uh, simple little ways so brilliant thank you very much sandra thank you catherine like me you probably weren't surprised to learn that almost all failed repairs were electrical appliances i felt that sandra's work gives us valuable insights into what stops us from getting our stuff repaired firstly access to fixers those people with the right knowledge and skills. Secondly, our available time, trying to fit finding and visiting the repair shop into our busy schedules. And thirdly, cost, the price of spares and labour, plus all the overheads of shops in convenient locations. I was interested in Sandra's analysis of the business model for repair shops and how to improve factors like cost and convenience to boost the chances of success. I loved Sandra's analogy between our approach to food and our approach to stuff and think there are some interesting research angles to pursue. Although, of course, we've not overcome the attraction of fast food either. As we got on to politics at the end, I've included a link to a post I did just after the US elections in 2016, 
entitled Making America Great Again, Three Ways a Circular Economy Can Help President Trump and You. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one? Head over to rethinkglobal.info or buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. You can find the podcast show notes with transcripts and links on rethinkglobal.info. Please let us know what you'd like us to feature on the podcast, and you can help other people find it by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. You can get in touch via our website, rethinkglobal.info, or connect with me on LinkedIn. See you next time. <laughs>